Uh, James chapter 4 is where we're going to be. It's another big headbutt. We've been talking about James, who's kind of like, if you're going to get in a fight with James, he would lead with the headbutt more so than kind of a jab or doing a little dance, and he'd just come in and, uh, and do that. He's, he's pretty abrupt. He's pretty rough. Um, and I think we'll explain a little bit more why, maybe. But uh, kinetic righteousness is what, we're, is what we're talking about. And just a little review in case that's a new phrase or, or whatever for you. Um, when we say kinetic righteousness, what we're talking about is where we take the righteousness that Jesus gave us on the cross, because it's him that creates righteousness for us, and we use it for the benefit of others. We don't just feel good about it for ourselves, but we, we take that and we use it for others. For instance, we receive mercy, and so we look to multiply that mercy in the places of shame and failure in our world. We receive Jesus' light, and we learn to shine it in the places where darkness usually reigns. Um, I love this quote from John Paul II, uh, Pope John Paul II. He's Pope, so he's a good Christian guy. Um, and, uh, and he was talking about one of the, the guys who showed up in his life, kind of a mentor. He was actually a cobbler. He was a guy that made shoes um, in Poland. And, uh, and Pope John Paul, just as a kid, was, was growing up, and he interacted with this, this, this shoe guy, you know. And, uh, and this is what he said of him. He was one of those unknown saints hidden amid the others like a marvelous light at the bottom of life, at a depth where night usually reigns. And I just love this. This is my whole aspiration in my life, that I might be a hidden marvelous light at the bottom of life in a place where darkness usually reigns. And just in case you didn't know, there are all kinds of places in our city, in our world, obviously, where darkness reigns. There are families, there are households, there's people's lives, there's souls. Um, there's all kinds of situations where, where, where darkness usually reigns. And what God is calling us to do is to be like this shoe guy, this cobbler, this Jan Tiranowski, and to find our way into those places like these hidden marvelous lights. And that's really what kinetic righteousness is. It's about taking what we have received and offering it and sharing it in the places where there's margins, where there's distress, where there's um, trouble, where there's heartache, where there's pain. And just walking into those spaces, not because we are something or we know how to rescue or we're some sort of superhero, but just because Jesus has broke off a little chunk of his mercy and we've been eating on it for a while and it's like, here, you want a piece? I love it that sometimes the best way to describe Christians is we're just beggars who know how to show other beggars where the bread is. And that's what Jan Tiernowski was for this guy who later became Pope. So that's pretty cool. So go do it because then you'll be a guy that the Pope will talk about later on. Um, but James doesn't use that Jan Tiernowski in his example. He actually continues to, like other New Testament writers, they talk about Rahab as this beautiful, shining light example of righteousness. But we all know Rahab was a prostitute. You can say it. It's church, but you can still say that word. Um, she was a prostitute. And, and really, her big claim to fame was this moment where she lied to cover up the spies who are a part of the, the people of God. And yet, 
And yet, so much takes place. She becomes a part of the community of faith, the community of the Israelites. She later becomes in the lineage of King David, the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. She's just so significant. Her and her whole household is saved. And so it's, it's not about where you come from. It's not about what you have done. In the, in the past, it's about what Christ can do in you. It's about when the grace of God, when the righteousness of God shows up, and it becomes kinetic in your life. It becomes active. It grows hands and feet, and you, and you act on it. That's what we're trying to get to those point to where our righteousness will become kinetic. And what's so beautiful I love about Rahab is, is her acts of righteousness didn't just rescue her, didn't just get her into the Bible, but it actually saved her entire household and it had such a generational ripple effect for her. And that's the beauty of righteousness. So why you should crave righteousness, why you should desire so much for your righteousness to become kinetic, to show up, is because it won't just affect you. It won't just affect the people that you're loving on, but your kids and, and the people around you and the generations come, they're watching and they need to see what kinetic righteousness is so they can walk it out as well. Um, so anyways, one of the best ways to find out what, what, what to do is to look at what not to do. That's what James thinks, and he's telling us in, that, in this chapter four. He basically is not telling us what kinetic righteousness is. We've, we've talked about that for a few weeks. He's telling us about the roadblocks to righteousness, the kinetic righteousness. What kept him, perhaps, from being able to experience the righteousness of God. What he's seen in the community of faith in this first century, um, around 60 AD as he's writing this, what was happening in there that was keeping them from really living into the fullness of life that God had for them. So, um, you ready for a headbutt? There's like five headbutts in this one chapter. So brace yourself. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it, so you kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. You can laugh. I mean, I think it is funny to me. Like I read this and I just have to stop laughing every once in a while because it's so painful. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's rough. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? God is jealous for what he has put inside of us. But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you, from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, but the one, who is a, um, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say. Now that's a, that's a setup. You know you're getting a headbutt, right? Now listen, you who say. It's just some words. They're very nice words, familiar words. Nothing mean in there. But you know what's coming. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year carrying on business and making money. 
why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So there's a lot here, obviously. A lot going on. James is uh, fired up. He's only got one more chapter, so he's just really jamming it in there, you know. Um, And actually, the next little section here is a great big headbutt as well. Um, If I can't get in there. Uh, that's next week. <clears throat> so anyways, James chapter 4, he's kind of been talking to us about what righteousness is. True religion is that you care for orphans and widows in their stress. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. We talked about um, the mercy triumphing over judgment. So Jeff talked about multiplying the mercy that God has given us is what will produce a harvest of righteousness. Uh, Ryan talked about if we, if we sow in peace, it will produce a harvest of righteousness. We've, we've been talking, talking about how to walk into this kinetic righteousness, how to, how to go further in and, and experience this. Last week we talked about faith and works and how they work together to produce the righteousness. But this time we're talking about the roadblocks. What stands between? What are the pitfalls? What are the traps that will keep us from experiencing kinetic righteousness or the, or the full, fullness of life that God has for us? And there's five things in this chapter. We're going to go through each one. So we can put them up on the screen right now. But the five things are that um, we are selfish. We're too friendly with the world. We are prideful. We are slanderous. We are apathetic. So these are the things that will keep us from being kinetic with our righteousness. These are very important things to notice. And, and, and so I'm going to kind of go through them. And as I go through them, I want you to just kind of take stock of your own life, you know, and uh, allow what needs to get in there and kind of cause some trouble to, to go ahead and do that. Um, we're not going to end in, in a place of beat up. We're gonna, there's, there's more to the story. There is good news, and we'll get there at the end. Um, we're going to take communion together at the end, which, again, is just inviting. It's drawing near to the Lord so he can draw near to us. But I really just want us to to be honest and open before the Lord. All of life is repentance. All of following Christ is ultimately an act of repentance. So the first thing, selfishness. Here's what James says. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you don't get, so you fight. Your motives are wrong, even when you pray. And you spend what God gives you on your own pleasures. That's the way he feels about you. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's the way he felt about this first church as he was the um, little brother of Jesus, right? He grew up in the same home as Jesus. Jesus was his older half-brother. And then he ultimately, after the resurrection, he decided that Jesus really was the Lord. Before the resurrection, he thought his brother was a little cuckoo. Um, but then after the resurrection, he was like, oh, oh. And he completely changed and made Jesus his Lord. And ultimately, he became the leader of the first church. He was cultivating the community of Christ in that first church situation because ultimately he had the best insight into what it really looked and felt like to be Jesus or to be with Jesus because he grew up that way. So as he was doing that, he comes out and he's kind of a little bit upset at what the community of Christ has, has turned into after 30 years since the ascension as he's writing this, as he's, he's realizing we've kind of done some good things, we've got some things right, but we've got some things really wrong. What he's saying is that the righteousness that was being expressed in the church of that day was selfish. 
He was noticing that people were really giving a lot of weight to their desires. They were basically following their desires more than they were following Christ. And it was really the the desires that was causing a lot of the dissension and strife and challenge and frustration in the community. That people were being self-centered. They were being selfish. Um, And today in our world, we have so many mantras that really celebrate and justify selfishness. You have heard phrases like, you do you, which sounds cool and, you know, rhymey, maybe. But it really connects with something inside of us where it's like, yeah, yeah, maybe I should just do what I want. Maybe that is the best way to live. Maybe that's going to get me to joy or happiness. Another phrase we hear all the time is follow your heart. Thank you, Hallmark Channel. Thank you, Walt Disney, for these mantras. Because the heart, it's the, it's the core of who we are. I mean, so much of our identity, you know, stems from what is deep inside of us. Our heart, it's, it's passion. It's intense. And, and when, when we don't follow our heart, when our heart gets broken, it's devastating. And so, man, it feels good and for, right, to follow our heart, to let that lead us and guide us. Or as we, my wife and I and our kids were just watching the new Cinderella or something on Amazon, that was torture. I don't know, if, sorry if you like it, but I have, I have only daughters, so, but they, were, they thought it was torture too, which made me feel like a good dad. Um, but in there, like the, the whole culmination of the, of the end is like, there's, these, there's Cinderella and the prince, and they're like, you know, everything's working out for them to be together. But then, you know, she has these dreams, and he has these dreams. And so they ended up just kind of going, well, I think I choose me. And that was, like, that was like the best thing you can do. Wow, how awesome, so courageous, so beautiful that they're choosing themselves. And, and we're fostering this. We're creating this. We're, 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 we're teaching our children this, that this is the way to live. But let me give you a couple of Jesus mantras. If anyone comes after me, if anyone wants to walk in my way and experience me, they will deny themselves. They'll take up their cross, and that's how they're going to follow me. Or... You guys have all heard, whoever loses his life for my sake, then he'll find it. Jesus' way is a lot more sacrificial. It is not desire-driven. And there's this phrase that I heard, you know, a couple years ago that I I literally will never forget. It has helped, helped me so much kind of filter and process my own desires with society around me. And, and it's just given me so much clarity and helped guide me so much as I try and navigate what is right and what is true and what is good. And it's a phrase that I first heard from a guy named John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in Portland. He says, our world is full of deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, which are normalized in a sinful society. I think this is what James is getting at, why there are quarrels, why there is so much challenge and friction and frustration, not just in the world, but even within the body of Christ. Is because we're not, 
we're not aware of this process, that there are deceptive ideas constantly flying around. There has been for all time. I mean, the Bible is full of all these different things. Philosophy is full of all. Nations have come. Empires have risen and fallen, full of deceptive ideas. The way that, that Paul talks about later is he talks about Satan throwing these fiery darts. And, and most of those deceptive ideas, you know, they come and, 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 and we were able to kind of see them as deceptive or wrong. But the problem is every once in a while those deceptive ideas connect with a disordered desire within our heart. And all of a sudden we're in a different place. All of a sudden we're in this challenge. And so there's a lot of deceptive ideas that could float around and bounce and you wouldn't have any problem with. But every once in a while one hits a disordered desire within you. Or me. And all of a sudden now I'm not as quick to pass it off. I'm not as quick to push it away. I'm not as quick to let it go. I'm not as quick to go ask people for help. But now I'm just kind of going, oh, this feels different. And so then I look around and I kind of try and figure out, is this okay? Is this right? And our society today is normalizing so many of these deceptive ideas. And many societies have done before. So now we can find justifications for those things. And find even examples of those things. But ultimately what we're doing is just what James is cautioning us against. Don't let your desires be your guide. Don't let your desires be your God. Those things need to be submitted. For instance, if we are ruled by our desires, we are, we'll find ourselves enslaved. We have desires for control, which again, not necessarily a bad thing, but, but if they're not submitted to the Lord, then then they, they lead us to dangerous places. Desires to be liked, desires to be safe or secure, desires that are sexual. All of these can be good, but if not submitted to God's Spirit and His Word, they will lead us far from God, whether we want that or not. Desires are a powerful thing, and the Bible is very clear about our hearts, that they are deceitful, desperately wicked. We are prone to wander. We are prone towards deception. Our desires, when sin entered the world, it corrupted our desires. And so we have good desires right alongside bad desires. And sometimes we're real full of those good desires that are in line with God. Sometimes we're full of desires that are in opposition to God. And sometimes we got both at the same time. Those are interesting times, right? And James getting to the core of those type of things. And make sure we're not selfish. It's not my will. It's your will be done. It's not what I desire. It's what you desire, Lord. Second thing, friendly with the the world. He calls you adulterous people and me. Friend of the world is an enemy of God. He jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in you. Our adultery has caused God's righteous jealousy to flare up. And it's ultimately because he loves you so much. But too friendly with the world. (laughs) Who? This is a tough one. This is a challenge because you want to be liked. I mean, and you young people, that's all you ever know is who likes it and who follows me. Like that's the whole game you're living in. How many likes and how many follows? If you're old enough, you're like, I don't even care because you don't even, you're not playing those games. But it's a very interesting world that, that we're trying to navigate. And, and it's true, like so much of us wants to try and do both. 
Like, we'll be cool with God and following his way, but then we're also cool with the world. You know, we walk those lines. We kind of, you know, drink a little bit. We do a little bit. We kind of play little games just so the world knows that we're not. And really, it's evangelism. Well, I'm just going to date him a little bit. You know, maybe I'll be able to share the Christ with him. I, I don't know how you play the game. But I know to be friendly with the world is to be an enemy of God. Is what James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was teaching the people. That he wanted to really help them know how to live like Christ. And ultimately, when you look at Christ, he was no friend of the world. How do I know? Because they put him on a cross to die a horrific death. The world saw him as an enemy and crucified him. And it's tricky these days because of how intense everything is politically, how intense everything is sociologically, ethnically. There's just so much challenge to be accepted by the world. And we just have to be careful. If you really want to see kinetic righteousness, if you want to see the beauty of righteousness for you and for all the generations after you, you got to make sure you're not getting too friendly with the world because you're going to find yourself an enemy of God. The third thing that he brings out here is pride. It's getting better, right? It's like, oh, now the next one will at least be easy. Pride. Holy moly. God opposes the proud. Submit to God. Realize we are sinners. Realize we need cleansing. Realize we are double-minded, prone to pride. That's what James says in this little headbutt. But the trick is pride is so sneaky. Pride is so good at disguising itself to where you would never really know what pride is. I'm going to unpack it a little bit and see if some of this connects. First of all, stubbornness. If anyone's ever called you stubborn, you might have a little drip of pride in there somewhere. Um, basically wanting to be in control, wanting to do things your way, thinking your way is the best way. Comes out as stubborn, but really it's just pride. How about being timid or shy? What? That's not prideful. Well, oftentimes it can be that you're afraid to look weak or incapable because that would damage or bruise your pride. So you just kind of... Stay shy, stay timid. Perfectionist. You're putting on an image. Anything but being vulnerable, unless putting off a vulnerable image will score me some points. That's the tricks we play. I'm going to read that again because it's, it's like, it's twisted, but I've done it. And I know some of you have too. So you're like, you're perfectionist. So like, you're putting on an image. You don't want people to see that. You're too prideful. And so you're just always trying to put yourself out there as something so great. And you just don't really want to be vulnerable. You don't want to be seen as vulnerable. You want to experience the feelings of vulnerability. Unless putting off the vulnerable image will score you some points. Then you'll come off as vulnerable. You might, you might have some pride issues if that's something you can connect with. Independence, you can't ask others for help. You'd rather just be alone and hide away than ask for help. Ultimately, that's just pride. You might consider it or might come off as like, well, I don't want to bother anybody. 
No, you're probably just prideful. Preoccupied? I've run into some of these people. It's very interesting. I can sm- and maybe because it's so funny because usually, you know, it takes one to, to know one. <laughs> you know that phrase you said when you were a kid or whatever? So true. Usually I can smell it in other people so easily because I reek of it. Um, but this preoccupation, you're so focused on your plans and ideas that you have trouble listening to others. When people are talking to you, you're literally just like, when are you going to stop talking so you can hear the real good ideas? The real important stuff. What really matters. Um, You think your ideas are the best all the time. And so it's really hard for you to listen or even pay attention to someone who's in the room with you. You just see past them, basically, or see right through them. Or only see them for what they can do to put your ideas forward. It's pride. How about jealousy? (whistles) Sounded like a Western movie starting. That was cool. I don't know what that was. Jealousy. This, 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 is, this is really hard. Being around others is too painful because everything really is a competition. And you don't necessarily want to be that way, but, but you can't help it. And, and so you don't want to be around others a lot because it hurts to lose. And it also hurts to see someone else win. And ultimately, even though it's heartbreaking, that, that's pride. That's pride. And pride will keep us from the grace of God. Pride will keep us from the righteousness of God every time. There's a lot of debate in theological circles not, not saying you should go in theological circles. They're not always that great. They're kind of boring sometimes. But there's a lot of debate as to, like, what is the real sin? Um, is it pride or is it deception? Those are, like, the two. They're in the championship fighting it out. And, and the reason that they say pride is, is ultimately, like, the only sin is kind of the idea of where, you know, all the colors come from the primary colors, red, yellow, blue, right? Got it. Um, but they're, but they're basically saying that ultimately every sin that anyone commits ultimately is, is, is pride. It's you saying my will instead of God's will. It's you saying my idea instead of God's idea. It, so it's ultimately just a pride. Every other sin is just kind of an outproduct of pride. And pride's something that we are prone to. Selfishness we are prone to. You, your kid, you don't teach your kid to say mine, but that's their first word because they love themselves. They're prideful little jerks <laughs> in super cute bodies. So that's pride. Slander, we're not going to take a deep dive into this, but basically um, he says speaking against your brother, judging a brother or sister, we're going to spend a whole message in two weeks just unpacking the tongue because the tongue in the book of James is like gets huge chunks of, of writing. So we're just going to talk about the tongue is one of the greatest purveyors or, or producers of unrighteousness in our world. We have a lot of um, work to do on our tongue. Um, Yeah, but James is super serious about the tongue, so we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But then the last one, apathy. Apathy. So he says, to him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. So when you 
when you first start following Christ, it's interesting how you'll get these kind of little, little stirrings in your heart. It's like, oh, I should say that or I should go to that place. And, and you respond immediately You're like, yeah, let's do this thing. Kind of like when Brittany and I first started dating, it was just like anytime Brittany would say something, I would jump and I would do it like kind of how, you know, like the, the soldier guy who's like, how high, you know, like, what do you want me to do? How high, how far? Like just, I would go thorough and I would even kind of creatively try and think of other things to add to what she asked me to do just because I loved her so much and I wanted to respond so quickly. Now she's like, hey, could you, and I'm like, we'll just get one of the kids to do it. Like you really want that? All right. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't really do that. I was just doing an example of what some people might do sometimes. But, we, but, but he's seeing that the, the community of Christ, remember, this was the book of Acts community. For those of you who know the Bible, the book of Acts was awesome. It was the manifestations of the Spirit showing up all over. People were being courageous and bold even in the face of persecution. It was an active, beautiful moment in time for the community of Christ. And now we're 30 years later, and James is writing this book. Same church, same people, a lot of them. But he's saying, I want you to understand that when you know what you're supposed to do, when the Spirit of God is leading you to do something and you don't do it, that's a sin. And he doesn't say, you Christians, all those wrong things you're doing, that's a sin. Although that's what I thought he would say. But what he's saying to the Christian community is saying, you guys need to understand that when you're not doing the things God's putting on your heart to do, that's a sin. When you're not being kinetic in your righteousness, that's a sin. That's the sin that God's concerned with. That's the sin the Spirit of God is putting on my pastoral heart to communicate you, to you. What happened? Used to be all hands and feet, and just a little heart. Now you're all head and mouth. There's a bunch of head mouths running around, slandering everybody. He's like, where'd the heart and the hands and the feet go? To him who knows what to do. So it's apathy. We settle in and we're just kind of like apathetic to what God is wanting us to do. We don't believe that if we go and do that thing, something beautiful can show up anymore. So we just kind of go through motions or just kind of stay put. So those are the five things that... Um, James wants us to understand our, our warnings. His pastoral heart is saying, watch out for these things. They will rob you of kinetic righteousness. They will rob you of the fullness of, of what God has for you. Um, and, 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 and as far as apathy goes, John Stuart Mill, who's a philosopher, he describes it this way. Let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. Martin Luther King Jr. said, History will have to record the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. This is kind of a little bit of an interesting, but in the Screw Tape Letters, a book by C.S. Lewis, where a devil is briefing his nephew, Demon, on how to tempt people. It's kind of a crazy book. You could check it out. Um, but basically, it, the nephew's name is Wormwood. And in a series of letters on the subtleties and techniques of tempting people, um, C.S. Lewis is, is writing as, as this devil speaking to this nephew, 
devil, Wormwood. In his writings, the devil says that the objective is not to make people wicked, but to make them indifferent. This higher devil cautions Wormwood that he must keep the patient comfortable at all costs. If he should start thinking about anything of importance, encourage him to think about his luncheon plans and not worry so much uh, because it could cause indigestion. And then the devil gives this instruction to his nephew. I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. And then there's this other guy who came up with a quote. Just like compassion is a byproduct of love, apathy is a byproduct of hate. That was me. That one's not in there. Didn't make the cut. (laughs) Well, that's something I feel like I le- I'm learning in this is that just as compassion or charity is a, is a byproduct of love, according to James and according to the Word of God, apathy is a byproduct of hate. It is not an in- innocent, justifiable reality. Like what Jeff taught us a couple of weeks ago, we are to be the people who run to the pain run into the challenge and darkness and distress because we've experienced mercy and light and love and the full power of God. So watch out for apathy as well. Um, But the beautiful thing that I want us to leave with us now that we've all been beat up a little bit is in this phrase, and I love it that James says this. I think this is so important. Right in the middle of this whole chapter, verse 6, he says, but he gives us more grace. But he gives us more grace. And then he says, the scripture tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if we can find ourselves in light of all of this, humbling ourselves before the Lord, there is all the grace that you could ever need. There is more grace than your sin. The righteousness of God is and always will be more powerful than your unrighteousness. It's not even a contest. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. His grace is sufficient for your weakness. But he gives more grace. Yes, we want to to walk into the fullness of righteousness. Yes, we don't want to fall into the traps and roadblocks. But even when we do, he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about when I say the word grace here. This is where it gets exciting. Because grace does cover us. The love of God covers us. God forgives us, no doubt about it. But there's two different things we need to understand, mercy and grace. And we've been talking a lot about mercy. Mercy is that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve, because I'm sure like me, some of you had a couple of these that dinged a little bit in your heart. Maybe some of you are like all five. But all of us, we get those things. We realize that we have stumbled. We have fallen short. And that's a healthy place to be. Because it's there that we find ourselves humble and we find the grace of God rising up. And James is saying this, interestingly enough, because I think James is a person who, again, when he thinks about all those years that he grew up with Jesus, in the very home of Jesus. As he grew up with Jesus, his older brother, we know from tradition that he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. 
that he did not believe that Jesus was who he said. They thought Jesus was a little bit cuckoo. But then after the resurrection, like we mentioned, James saw him in that glorified state. James saw what had happened, and he's like, well, I haven't really seen this before. <laughs> this seems a little different. And James, the little brother of Jesus, actually put his faith in Christ. He believed his older brother was the Messiah, Lord of heaven and earth. And he committed the rest of his life to following in his ways and teaching others to do the same. And I think James, why he's so ugh, a headbutter, why he's so intense is because he is thinking back about all those years when he had Jesus right there next to him. All those years before he finally saw Jesus in that resurrected state, and he is agonizing at what he lost, at what he missed out on. And so his warnings come out so intense and so strong because he doesn't want you and I to miss out on the nearness and closeness of Jesus. He remembers his own selfishness. He remembers he was too friendly with the world of his day. He was trying to be in with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He wanted their acceptance, and he chose that over the acceptance of Jesus. He was full of pride at his legalism. He probably slandered Jesus plenty and his followers. And somewhere in there, he knew what was right. He knew what he should do, but he always failed to do it. And so now it comes out as this intense, pastoral, fatherly, you guys don't miss this. But somehow even James was able to say, but he gives more grace. He experienced the grace of God for himself. And what the grace of God does is different than mercy. Mercy is where we don't get what we deserve. James knew that what he deserved was he deserved to be put out and to put away from the mercy and grace of Jesus. He shunned Jesus his entire life, and then Jesus in the resurrection comes close to him and says, James, I'm here for you too. And James receives him. And so he didn't get what he deserved, but he also got the grace. So mercy is, what getting, is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And what James didn't deserve was the covering that he got in Christ, but also this inner working that grace does. I want to read two verses to help us understand what grace does. The first is Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can hear James kind of uttering some, uh, uh, echoing some of that. But then Paul says this. He says, what's so fascinating, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So the grace of God is not just a covering where God says, oh, that's no big deal, don't worry about it. No, God is deadly serious about sin. How deadly serious? He sent his own son to be crucified. He's deadly serious about sin. But what he does with his grace is he does forgives us, but he also comes into us and begins to work within us to change our desires, to change our will, to change our surrender, to change our relationship with him. Another place, um, Paul's talking about this, and he says this to Timothy. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's the grace that comes and does a work in us. The grace of God is so amazing. Again, not just because it covers us, but it comes inside us and begins to compel us towards righteousness. Compel us towards the things of God. And I'll tell you what, I was the most selfish, self-centered, prideful human being there ever was, I think. And the reason I can say that is because nobody else existed in the world for a lot of my life. I mean, literally, everybody else was just living in my world. So selfish, so self-centered, and I didn't even know it. And I grew up around church a lot. And then I remember Jesus came and said, hey, I want to show you a different way. And for whatever reason, probably because I was a little unsure at the moment, I said, okay, Lord. And I started going in his way. And what Jesus did is he rescued me from absolute selfishness and pride. And all of a sudden, I started to care about the people around me. I really started to care about what was going on in other people's lives. I really started to listen to see what kind of pain there might be so that I could see what I could do to sacrifice for it. It was not something that I read in a book. It was not something that I just kind of practiced or you know, meditated on. It was a grace work that God did in my life. And I'm so thankful for it that he rescued me. And what James wants you to know as a pastor and what I want you to know as a pastor, whether you're online or in person, that God has more grace for you. Whatever challenge you're facing, he has more grace to add to the grace he's already given you so that you can overcome. And you can experience the fullness of what he has for you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I know there's some people who are very frustrated at this point. You're not answering their prayers. Their desires are too difficult to overcome. Their pride has them completely locked up. Or the apathy is just overwhelming. pray, Jesus, that you would come near with your grace and you would overwhelm them with your goodwill, your good pleasure. You would win the battle and win the day, Lord. Some of you in this room, you you can really relate to some of those feelings, and I just want to encourage you in a whisper to really invite God in. cry out to him and ask for help. Like James says, humble yourself, submit to God, resist the devil, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's a promise. And God, we need you to draw near to us.